Our Old Testament lesson this morning comes from Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6, which can be found on page 600 in our Pew Bibles, or page 1147 in the large print Pew Bibles. Before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day, and God, we thank you for all the gifts that you've given to us. We thank you for your amazing love. We thank you for the gift of Jesus. We thank you for the gift of your spirit. We thank you for the gift of your creation. We thank you for the gift of your word. We pray that as as we read your word today together, as we consider what it means and what it means for us today, we ask that you would that you would open our ears, that you would awaken our sleepy minds, that you would soften our hard hearts, God, that we would meet you through your word, by your spirit, even this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Isaiah 53, 4 to 6. Surely he took up our pain. And bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Turning to Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. It should be found on page 970 in your pew Bibles or 1865 in the large print. We hear that every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when called by God just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, You are my son, today I have become your father. And he says in another place, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And, once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him, and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. We began a series last week, a short series, on the tears of Jesus, 
there are really only three places in the Bible where it is recorded that Jesus cries. We looked at one last week, Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus, when just the shortest of all verses, Jesus wept. Pop quiz for those of you who were here last week. Does anybody remember what the book and chapter and verse is of Jesus wept? <laughs> I heard I heard some I heard some saying John with a question mark afterwards. John <laughs> John eleven thirty five, that's right. You were so close. You were all very close. And we talked about how it's important to know the address, where it comes from, that it's not just that Jesus wept, but the circumstances around his weeping, because that does change things. The passage we're actually going. So if, if you've forgotten that, that's where it is. John eleven thirty five. You can go look that one back up later today. Today we'll be in Matthew uh, twenty six. Verses 36 to 46. And in this passage, it actually doesn't say that Jesus cried. It doesn't say that there are tears. But what we just read from Hebrews, that's where the tears come in. The writer of the Hebrews says there were tears here, even if Matthew doesn't record them. But as we read what Matthew did record, we do see Jesus overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. I don't know how that could happen with no tears. Maybe why the writer of the Hebrews uh, puts that in. But this happens the night when Jesus is betrayed. He has spent a good deal of time with his disciples, talking with them, washing their feet, sharing the Last Supper. Judas has already left to betray him. And then, Matthew 26, starting in 36. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing The flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look. The hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. This is a rough night. It is rougher than any rough night we have ever experienced, actually. And I know many of you have had some very rough nights. 
what Jesus is going through at this point may be a little different than what we originally see as we read through this. Because I think for a lot of us, what we see when we read this is Jesus knows he's getting ready to die. And he's afraid to die. And so when he gets right up to the point of actually having to give up his life, he's overwhelmed with it. And that kind of makes sense. But it really doesn't. Not when you consider who Jesus really is, what he has come to do, and the way in which he has repeatedly told his disciples, he's going to the cross. This is going to happen. He's going to die. In fact, this has been the continual temptation Jesus has faced. Uh, This scene, by the way, is almost a replaying of the same scene that we see at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. When he's taken out into the wilderness, and Satan comes to him, and he gives him three temptations. And three times he has to respond to the temptation. And every time, the temptation is basically the same. Skip the cross. Skip it. Don't go through the hard stuff. I can make this really easy on you. And every time, Jesus has to respond with trusting God, going back to the word of God, and saying, no, this is where I'm going. He knows from the very beginning he's headed to the cross. That is why he came. Here we have a very similar scene. Three times he goes and prays. And what is it every time that he's wanting to have happen? This cup to be taken from him. For the cup to be taken from him. Now, if we read in that that the cup is him dying physically, I think we make too little of it. He certainly will die physically. He knows that. And he's been headed straight for that for some time. However, biblically... When we're talking about the cup, we're talking about this cup of wrath, the cup of God's judgment that will be poured out on the sins of the people. But here it is. That Jesus is not just dying physically, but that he is taking the cup of wrath. He is the one who's drinking the poison. So we don't have to. This cup of wrath is what will separate Jesus from the Father. This is different than dying physically. You know, he says to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. The thief dies, and today he's with him in paradise. And yet, Jesus knows for him, there's something different about this death. He's not just dying physically. He's going to be separated from the Father, which he's never experienced before. From not just the time he was born, but from all eternity, from the very beginning, before the creation of the world, the Father and the Son and the Spirit have been together in communion and community and love and fellowship. And now, he's on the eve of separation. And it is unthinkable. Dying he can handle. But separation from the Father? Even for a moment? He's never experienced that. He says, if there's any other way, let's do this some other way. If there's any other way. And so the first thing I think to see in this passage is that the penalty for sin is much greater than we often think it is. 
We read where Paul writes in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. And we think, okay, so if we sin, then that means that we're going to die physically. And we always have that sort of in our minds, that physical death is all that's at stake. And we might even make that into really not much of an anything because we say, well, everybody dies anyway. What's the big deal? But that's not the kind of death that Jesus is actually facing. And it's not the kind of death that Paul is actually talking about. But we're talking about a separation from God. That's what the wages of sin is. And it actually makes sense. It's in line. It's not just that it's a a punishment or a penalty in that sense. It is actually in line with what sin is. If we turn our hearts away from God and we continue in that direction forever, guess where we end up? Separated from God. This is why the wages of sin is death. This is why what comes from that is separation from God. And when we look at Jesus and we see that he is overwhelmed by this, how does this not overwhelm us? How can we ever make light of the sins in our lives? Is it because we don't understand the holiness of God? Is it because we don't understand the fellowship that he desires to have with us? Or have we just never understood that the wages of sin is death in such a serious way that the Son of God himself would be overwhelmed with sorrow to even think about it. That's the first thing I think we need to see here. Secondly, though, is we need to see how Jesus, through it all, through everything he's ever done, continues with the great commandments. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus actually, when asked, says, these are the great commandments. You know, what are the, what's the greatest commandment? He can't give just one. He gives the two. And he says, they, on everything, everything else hangs on these two. So you can think about them like links of a chain. And as we all know, a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. So if we either love God and don't love people, that doesn't work. If we love people and don't love God, that doesn't work. We saw that all through 1 John. And here we see Jesus at the moment when he is overwhelmed to the point of death. He doesn't lose either link. Do you see this? Where's his love for God in this? We see him actually practicing what he preaches in a real deep way. Do you remember when the disciples asked Jesus, you know, Lord, teach us to pray? And He told them a prayer that we recite every Sunday. One that we pray together. And one of the lines in that prayer is, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is what Jesus teaches us all to pray. Not my will be done, but thy will be done. And when it comes to the point where he is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, He doesn't say, you know what, that's good for my disciples to pray that. (laughs) But right now, I I want something else. No. He knows this is what, uh, what it comes down to. And so he prays, if it's possible, let's do this some other way. Don't make me drink this cup of wrath. But, not my will, but your will be done.
tell you something I heard this week in a sermon, actually about the book of Job. So not specifically on this passage, but I think it really helps understand what's going on here. Because we look at a passage like this and we say, how can God let this happen? Jesus clearly does not want to go through this. And yet he says, not my will, but yours be done. And the next thing we see happen is that Jesus has to go through this. And so we say, does God really want Jesus to suffer and be crushed under this sorrow? Does he really want this separation from his own son? And that's why Jesus goes through with it, because that's what God wants? Yes and no. Here's, here's what pastor said about um, what we learn through the book of Job. You know, why does God allow this kind of suffering in Job's life? says, here's the answer. God only allows Satan to accomplish the very opposite of what he wanted to accomplish. He only gives Satan enough rope to hang himself. It says again, he permits Satan only to bring evil into Job's life in such a way that, and in such an amount that it actually completely defeats Satan's real intention. Satan is only allowed by God to actually defeat himself and achieve the very opposite of what he wanted. This is what we see with Job, but this is certainly what we see in this uh, Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus. It's not that God wants separation from his son. It's not that he wants his son to suffer and be crushed. But he allows that because he knows how that can be used for a greater purpose. And in fact, what it will do is it will mean the uncrushing of everyone else. And so the evil that is aimed right at Jesus backfires. And by him being crushed, we are saved, and we see later, hints as to what's to come, (laughs) that Jesus himself becomes uncrushed. And this is the third, third point that I think we have to see. And that is his love for us. Yes, the love for the Father, that even in the midst of all this, he can still say, thy will be done. But here's the other point. And that is that the reason he continues to go through this is linked completely, not only with love of the Father, but also with the love for us. This is why he goes through this. This is why he says, if this can be done some other way, You know, if possible, take this cup from me. If it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it. And what he's saying is, if there's any other way to bring your children back to life, if there's any other way for your children to be in your family, to have fellowship with you again, and let's do that. But if this is the only way that that can happen, then I will do it. And I will do it. Do you hear the love that's there that when he is at this point of knowing that he's going to be separated from the Father forever, but at the same time, he also knows what that would mean for us? This is like the, the soldier who dives on the grenade to save all those around him. Because I know what this would mean for them if I don't do it. If this is the only way, I don't want to go through this. 
but that sacrificial love, the love that says, I will lay down my life that you can live. This is what Jesus is doing. It is an amazing love, and one that is much greater and deeper than we often think about. We hear the word love, and we yeah, sure. But when you hear about the love of God for you, please keep in mind what the wages of sin really are, what it is that we really deserve to have, that separation from God forever. We don't even know what that's like, by the way. All of our lives we have been in a world where God is present and we've still turned away from him. Second, see where Jesus took his sorrows straight to the Father, continuing to pray, your will be done. And third, as we consider the wages of our sin and the gift of God that is eternal life, through Christ Jesus our Lord, as Paul tells us in Romans. And we approach this meal and every moment of our lives in a way that says, thank you, thank you, thank you. To God be the glory. Great things he has done. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.